Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kyle. Uh, The scripture this morning will be from Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verses 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because it is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. <clears throat> he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, "If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread." He answered, "It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God." Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down." For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will sh- not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and began to serve him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Ankeny Gospel Church. And um, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4 slash the end of chapter 3. Uh, while you're turning there, I just want to remind us real quick why we're here and um, encourage us to to continue in this posture of worship. Here at AGC, we, we say we worship in five different areas. We worship through singing, through the teaching of the word, through the reading of the word, through communion, and through prayer. And every week we do all of those five things. Um, we pray, we celebrate communion together, we hear the word read over us, we listen to the teaching of the word, and we, we sing, and all of this is worship of God. And um, I don't know if you've heard, but recently across the United States at various universities, there's been, at college campuses, there's been revival and there's been um, prayer. There was a Asbury Seminary, their chapel started on a Wednesday morning two weeks ago and it's still going on. People just praying and singing and devoting lives to the Lord and people getting saved. And then other college campuses kind of catching that fire and, and going on. And it's really encouraging and it's also really interesting because revival is just beautiful, but oftentimes revival happens when it's a very, very dark world. And so it's a sobering reminder that there is a prince of the power of the air and there is evil and wickedness out there. And It's a joyful reminder because we know that our God in the darkest moments, the light shines the brightest. So what are we here doing today? We are here to be the people of God, to worship God. Through us singing glory, glory, hallelujah. Through us celebrating communion, remembering Christ's death for us. 
through us praying, communing with the Father, talking to God, for us hearing, actually hearing the words of Scripture read over us, and then through what's going to happen here in, is just the, to the teaching of Scripture and just learning what God has to say to us. So I hope that's encouraging to you. I know it's been encouraging to me as well. And um, just a reminder, we are the people of God. The church is the people of God worshiping God. It's as simple as that. We're here to love God and love others. And so that's what we're, we're planning on doing today. So with that, I hope you're at uh, Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> I'm sorry, chapter four um, and the end, the end of, of chapter three. Um, we just heard the story read of Jesus' baptism and if you're new or you haven't been following along, we're in a series on Matthew and uh, we're gonna be taking the next two years going through the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew's divided up into five movements. Um, each movement ends with the significant teaching of Jesus. And the first movement ends with the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapters five through seven. So we're in the first movement of Matthew right now, about halfway through it. Um, and then we'll take a little break and we'll do movement two this fall, et cetera, et cetera. But um, just by way of uh, reminder before we, um, before we read, the Lord is the best uh, teacher of the scriptures. So I want to continue this posture of worship and just ask the Lord that he would open our hearts and minds and eyes because without his help, we cannot see or hear or believe. So let's pray to our Father together. Our Father in heaven, we are beyond amazed at who you are. And if we're not, make us. Father, I ask right now that every eye in this room, every ear, every heart, that you would open, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. God, tune our hearts to your glory, to your purposes, open our eyes that we might behold and look at and see just beautiful, beautiful truths about who you are and about who we are. And Father, open our ears so that we can hear your still, small voice calling to us. Father, remind us of your love for us, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We are grateful. We are amazed and humbled to be worshiping you right now in spirit and in truth, and I pray that we would continue that posture of worship. We pray all this in your powerful Son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The end of Matthew chapter three is the baptism of Jesus. Unfortunately, we won't be able to spend a ton of time in that today. However, we do have a podcast, shameless plug. We have a podcast and uh, this week I'll be putting up a little like 15 minute overview of why, the, a, answering the question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why was he baptized? What's going on there? For now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on what happened after Jesus' baptism and go into the, temp, the, the testing in the wilderness, Jesus' testing in the wilderness. But in order to do that first, um, what I wanna do is I wanna look at this story from three different perspectives. And the first perspective is uh, Israel's story. The second perspective is Jesus' story. And then finally, the third perspective is our story. Matthew, uh, we've said this over and again, Matthew uses the Old Testament a lot. He just kind of assumes 
that the people who are reading it are familiar with the story of Israel, with the story of the Old Testament. So what, what we're gonna do today is we're just gonna quickly step in the, is the Old Testament world of Israel's story, then we're gonna see how Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story, and then we're gonna see how Jesus' story actually becomes our story with these tests in the wilderness. First, Israel's story. I often get a, a question that gets overlooked oftentimes is why did God choose Israel? Why is Israel the people of God? I don't know if you've ever thought that before, but what was God's end goal with choosing them? We know that God chose Abraham in Genesis to be a nation, and then Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had many sons, etc. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Anybody? No? <laughs> There's a childhood song I learned that uh, sounds like that. Um, but the reason, the reason God chose Abraham and the nation of Israel was to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. The reason that God chose Abraham in Israel was so that Israel could be God's representative to the other nations. So that people could look at Israel and the way that their lives were structured and organized and the way that they were loving one another and they would be able to see the God that they worship. God wanted Israel originally to be a kingdom of priests, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God, and if you remember God's words to Abraham, he said, I, in and through your family, all of the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed. The reason God chose Israel to begin with was so that he could bring his blessing to all of the nations. And so, as you follow the story, you know that this nation grows and Abraham has many, many sons. And eventually, if you get to right before Exodus, this nation of Israel finds themselves enslaved to Egypt. And they're under Egypt's strong oppression for 400 years. Eventually, God raises up a deliverer, Moses, and he delivers those people out of Israel. And then here's what I wanna, wanna look at, is that Moses, um, he, he brings them after, Is, after Egypt, sorry, after he brings them out of Egypt, he leads them where? To the Red Sea, right? And then he, he miraculously, God miraculously parts the Red Sea, they pass through the waters, and where's the first place they go? Into the wilderness. And they're there, they're tested for 40 years. And God brings them into the wilderness and he tests them. And they go hungry for a little bit and then he gives them manna. And then they go thirsty for a little bit and then he gives them water. And he tests them over and over and over again and they fail the test every single time. I don't think there's a single time that they actually pass the test, including Moses. Moses did not pass the test either. So they're in this wilderness for 40 years and then right before they're about to go into the promised land, Moses is at the Jordan River right before they're about to cross over and enter the land. And he basically turns around and he gives them a speech. And he's like, hey, Israel, you're about to go in there. Uh, I'm not, and your grandparents are not, and all that stuff, but you guys are about to go in there. Remember the Lord's faithfulness in your life. And that speech is actually the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the speech that Moses gave to Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter eight, he warns them if, that they, forget, if they forget God, and if they forget God's blessing, they will perish, but if they remember the Lord, they will, um, they will flourish in the land. And in chapter eight, verses one through three, he says this, and this is gonna be on the screen here too. Um, he says this, this is Moses speaking to um, uh, the Israelites before they go into the promised land. Carefully follow every command that I'm giving you today so that you may live and you may increase, and you may enter and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might 
humble you and so that he might test you. Why? Not because he's mean or conniving, but rather to know what was in your heart. Next slide. He humbled you. How? By letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In summary, here's the story of Israel, and this will be on the screen as well. Israel's story is what? As soon as they leave Egypt, where do they go? The Red Sea. When they pass through the Red Sea, what happens? They have a new identity. What were they before the Red Sea? They were slaves. They were enslaved to Egypt. They were captives. They were being pursued. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and on the other side, what happens? They're given their identity, and they're given a covenant with the Lord. This is who you are now. And then they go where? Into the wilderness. Why? To be tested. For how long are they tested? 40 years. In some, this is, these are bullet points of Israel's story. Now, I hope you can see where this is going. Next slide. Jesus' story. What happened in the text in Matthew that we just read? Well, he was baptized. What happened immediately after? He passed through the waters. What happened immediately after? There was the spirit of the Lord there, and there was a voice that came from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. What is that? That's identity language. That's a language of you are my son. I love you. I'm well pleased. I have a smile on my face every time I see you. Then, what happened? God led Jesus where? Into the wilderness. For what purpose? To be tested. For how long was Jesus fasting? 40 days, and it wasn't 40 years, so that's the only little difference. But 40 days and 40 nights. Now, let's pause. Let's back up. Israel was supposed to do what? Israel was supposed to bring God's blessing to the nations. Israel was supposed to be the vessel to show God's character to everybody else, to show God's love, to show God's patience, to show God's uh, intimacy with his people, to show God's original plan. So God led them through the waters, gave them a new identity, they were traveling in the wilderness, and he tested them to say like, hey, are you gonna be able to be my representatives? Are you gonna be able to be the one who all the nations are gonna be blessed through? Are you gonna be able to be my kingdom of priests? And what happens in the wilderness? They fail the test over and over and over and over again. In other words, Israel failed to do what God wanted them to do. So the question is, who's going to fulfill that? Is Israel, Israel either needs to do one of two things. They either go back in time and go back to the wilderness and like try to pass the test this time, or they need actually somebody to pass the test on their behalf for them. Somebody who can be the true human, the true Israelite, the true person who will pass the test, who will bring God's blessing to the nations, who will represent God perfectly, and in and through whom all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And what is Matthew saying here? Matthew, by paralleling Jesus' story with Israel's story, is making a very important claim. Jesus is the one in and through whom all of the promises of Israel are fulfilled. Jesus is the one that all of the, in and through whom, when those who fall under Jesus and they become Jesus' brothers and sisters and sons of God, they now get that test, the passing of the test given to them. So Matthew's forcing us to ask, 
is Jesus's fate going to be the same as Israel's fate? Is Jesus's fate going to be the same as Israel's fate or is he going to pass the test? And with that, we get to these three tests of Jesus. I'm gonna start in chapter four, verse one, and then we're just gonna go look at these three tests. Um, actually, before we do that, a few caveats with uh, chapter four uh, and the tests of Jesus. This was actually one of the first sermons I preached, chapter four, one through 11. I think it was like, 16 or 17, and I'm glad it wasn't recorded because I'm sure I said something heretical <laughs> at some point there. But my point, and uh, I'm gonna, yeah, my point was, in my sermon, you know, a decade ago, was, hey, Jesus memorized the Bible, so you should be like Jesus, and you should memorize the Bible too. Because look, he quoted scripture to, now, is that wrong? Is that a wrong application? No, 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 no. We should all be memorizing scripture, and we should all be doing these things. But my point was, hey, Jesus fasted, and Jesus was you know, praying for 40 days and 40 nights, and Jesus memorized scripture, so you should too. Is that wrong? No, absolutely not. But is that the point of this text? We're gonna see very clearly that this is not the point of that text. So, that's the first caveat. The second caveat is I've found in my own life, and as I talk to people about this text, about Jesus' testing by the devil, I have found that it's very easy to distance ourselves from what happened here. As in, we look at the tests that the devil, you know, the devil says, hey, turn these stones into bread. And we're like, well, that's not tempting. Like, I don't know about, well, I mean, I've never fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, so maybe it would be tempting. But it just seems a little like, well, that's not that like tempting. And then like, hey, jump off this building and God will save you. It's like, well, that's a little weird. And like, hey, bow down to me and you'll get everything. Well, that's obviously like, I'd obviously say, say no to those things. We distance ourselves that way. We also distance ourselves when we focus on when we don't focus on the humanity of Jesus. And we can easily excuse this and be like, oh, well, of course Jesus passed those tests. He was God. And that's true, but also he was, what, 100% human, which means that these tests have to be relatable. They have to be relatable. Otherwise, Hebrews is wrong when uh, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tested and tried in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus had to struggle. These had to be hard for Jesus. And we see later in Matthew when he's in the garden of, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, was that a hard test? Yes, he was dropping, he was uh, uh, dropping sweats of blood from his brow because he was so stressed and he was like, Lord, if it your will, let this cup pass from me. The humanity of Jesus really needs to be emphasized here. Otherwise, we can find out, we find out we distance ourselves from this and we're like, well, this isn't really relatable. These are kind of like weird tests. I don't, you know, the devil's not bringing me to any temples and telling me to throw myself down. So we're gonna see that, that's, uh, that this, this passage is actually very, very, very relatable. <clears throat> so the first test is in verses three through four. Before we get there though, let's read verses one and two. Again, in chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit of God. God led Jesus into the wilderness in order to put him to these tests by the devil. So he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and by default, he was hungry. I would be too. Uh, everybody would be too. <laughs> Then we get to the first test. Look at verse three. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, 
tell these stones to become bread. What do we know about Jesus so far in the Gospel of Matthew? In chapter 3, verse 17, a voice came from heaven and he said what? This is my beloved son. And the enemy comes in at Jesus' weakest moments and says what? Are you sure about that? Are, are you sure you're the son of God? Because you're hungry and God has not provided for you. If you really are the son of God, you should, you should sons of God don't go hungry, Jesus. Sons of God, they, they provide for themselves. So you should just tell these stones to become bread because really, uh, like you might not be the son of God based on, on your circumstances. What is the devil doing? He's attacking Jesus' identity by focusing on his circumstances. If you are the son of God, you would have bread at your fingertips. And how does Jesus respond? Verse four, he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We read this verse already from Deuteronomy 8, which references Israel in the wilderness who did what? They did not learn that man does not live on bread alone. They went hungry and they complained and they tried to take matters into their own hands. They decided to grumble, to fear, to worry, and to doubt. And what does Jesus do? Jesus actually passes this test. He says, no, no, no. There is a, there is a life that is more than just subsist, subsistence living. Like there's a life out there that's beyond just living by bread. There is a life out there that, that, is, that is given life when you actually listen to and obey and are given the words of God. Now, does he say man doesn't live by bread? No. Obviously, we live by bread. We have to eat and have sustenance in order to survive. But what does he say? He says, man doesn't live by bread alone. As in, you can live physically, materially, and still be missing out on true life. In other words, where is true life found? In the words of God. And who is the word of God? Jesus. This test just became a little bit more relatable. How many times have you, brother and sister in Christ, have you heard these words? Are you sure God loves you? Because I mean, look at your circumstances. Are you sure you're a child of God? Look at, the, look at your life right now. Look at your relationships. Look at your job situation. Look at your family dynamics. Look at how miserable you are. Are you sure you're the son of God? Are you sure you're the daughter of God? Because honestly, if I were you, I would just start to try to take matters into your own hands. Clearly God is not there, doesn't have your back, so you need to just, you need to just take matters into your own hands. We saw this in Genesis 3. We saw this all throughout Israel in the wilderness. We see this in Jesus and we see this in our story as well. The enemy attacks our identity by making us focus on our circumstances in life. Jesus passes the test. Test number two, verse five. <clears throat> then the devil took him, by the way, this is um, visionary language, so Jesus is probably having a vision. Uh, the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he, new tactic, quote Bible, <laughs> He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, what's happening here? 
The devil again starts with identity language. Are you sure, are you sure, Jesus, that you're the son of God? You sure about that? Because if you are, here's what's gonna happen. And he quotes Psalm 91. Now, we don't have time to go read it all right now, but let me just summarize it for you. It's a very good psalm. The entire psalm is about uh, the person that God loves finding refuge in God. The entire psalm is about God being their protector, about God being their refuge, their fortress. Uh, It talks about having no fear of day or night or enemies or thousands of people around you because God is your protection. It says that no harm will come to this person who God protects. And then uh, it, it ends with, with God saying, I will protect him because he knows my name and I will answer him. It's this beautiful psalm about God's protection of his people. And how does the enemy use it? Notice he does something very subtle here. He just like, he quotes this scripture, but then he like twists it just a little bit. Instead of it saying like, this is what is true about God and his people, the devil says what? If God actually loves you, you can use this passage of scripture to kind of like strong arm God and make him prove himself to you. If you are the son of God, Jesus, your own scripture has said that you can like jump off a building and like you're not gonna strike your foot against a stone. So you should actually test God, make sure that he's, he's true to his word and, and see if, and, and validate if, if you're the son of God. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's not how this relationship works, Jesus says. I'm not here to try to test God. Rather, God is here to test me. The Father tests me, not the other way around. This verse that Jesus quotes is also from Deuteronomy, and it's also, from the, uh, it's also in reference to the wilderness generation. When they were in the wilderness, God was bringing them into the wilderness to test them and what ended up happening. They looked at their surroundings. They said, there's no food, there's no water, there's nothing. God, if you really love us, prove yourself to us. If you really love us, show yourself faithful and give us food because we're starving. If you really love us, show yourself faithful and give us water because we're thirsty. And and God's like, "I I just delivered you out of Egypt I brought these 10 plagues. I just delivered you out of the Red Sea. I'm here, I'm with you. You can literally see my presence in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And you're asking me to prove myself to you? Israel failed the test. Jesus passed the test. This test is also relatable to us. How? You look at your life. You look at your circumstances. God, I've been faithful to you. Yeah, I've messed up a few times, but I mean, I've tried my best and I trust in you, and I know that you've given me your life and you've forgiven my sins. If that were the case, none of this chaos that's happening in my life were to be happening. God, I need you to, I need you to show up. Just prove yourself a little bit. Give me something. Give me a sign. What is that? It's putting the Lord our God to the test. That's not how this relationship works. Israel and us have failed the test. Jesus passes test number two. Finally, test number three. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All the kingdoms of the earth and their splendor. Verse nine. 
And the devil said to him, Jesus, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Notice how the devil didn't start. The devil did not start by saying, if you are the son of God. Rather, he just short circuits that and he just goes right on to to the heart of the matter. I want you to fall down and worship me. Now, a few things here. Is the devil in authority of all the kingdoms of the world? The answer is yes and no, right? If you remember in Ephesians, Paul says that there is a prince of the power of the air. The enemy, if you, I mean, just look at the world. Look at your news feed. Look at your own life. Is there evil, genuine evil in this world? Yes, absolutely. And is the devil in complete sovereign control over everything that happens? No, and hallelujah for that. But we live, this is the, this is the tension that we as Christians live in. Because we, we say we live in a kingdom of heaven, which is where God's rule and God's reign is evidenced in our lives, but we also live under the kingdoms of the prince of the power of this era with principalities of darkness that overshadow and they blind us. Now Satan says, uh, the devil says, excuse me, I will give all of these things to you if you fall down and worship me. Again, it's easy to make this be like, oh, well, of course, you know, he's, Jesus isn't gonna like fall down to some red person with a few horns and a pitchfork, you know, like, but that's, that's not quite what's, what's going on here. What is, what do we know is Jesus's destination for his, his life? After the cross, after his burial, after his resurrection, what does he say at the end of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When did that take place? After the cross, In other words, what is Satan offering here? Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut to future glory that he's already gonna get. So the question is, how is Jesus going to get that? Is Jesus going to take shortcuts and compromise in order to get what he knows is already coming? Or is he going to walk the path of suffering, walk the path of pain, walk the path of the cross, and be vindicated and given that glory by God himself. Look at Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. When is the other time Jesus says this? Later in this gospel, in this exact gospel, there's one disciple who Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, too, and his name is Peter. And Peter, in this scene, it's in, uh, later in Matthew, in this scene, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Matthew is like, yes, absolutely, you're right. And I'm sorry, Jesus is like, yes, absolutely, you're right. And then Jesus explains, in order to do that, I have to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. I have to be beaten. I have to be mocked. I have to be crucified. And then, three days later, I will rise from the dead. And how does Peter respond? Peter says, that's not, that's not how Messiahs work. That's not what this, that's not what I signed up for. Dead Messiah is failed Messiah. Jesus, come on, have you read your Bible? Have you read Psalm 2? You're supposed to conquer these guys. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Two times Jesus says that in Matthew. Both times, the people that are, sa- are, are testing him are saying, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through suffering. The devil says, you could just bow down and worship me right now. You don't have to go through the suffering. Peter says, you shouldn't go through the cross. That's that's crazy talk. What are you talking about? And he says, that is not the way that I'm going to do this. 
Jesus answers, go get behind me, Satan, for it is written, in verse 10 again, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is again a quote from Deuteronomy in reference to the wilderness generation of Israel who failed over and over and over again and ended up worshiping other gods, kind of hedging their bets. Well, if this doesn't work out, then I'm just gonna worship these gods and make sure that this works out too. Now, we talked about Israel's story, we talked about uh, uh, Jesus' story, and, and I think we, we've been hinting at our story, but we're gonna land there right now. And the, the, it's interesting to think that the tactics of the enemy never change. The tactics of the enemy in Israel's story are the same tactics that he used with Jesus' story and his testing, and they're the same tactics that he uses today with us. Let's think of the first test. What is the first test? Well, it, when you become a Christian, right, you have this, this, when you say yes to Jesus as Lord of your life, and you, you pray and you say, Lord, I, I, you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. That's what Paul says in Romans. When that happens, that is a spiritually enlightening moment. That is a very high moment, right? You are, you are a new creation. You have gone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have like scales removed from your eyes and you're like, oh my goodness, I see what living really is. And then you get baptized to represent that. In, in, you get baptized to be a public, trans, uh, public declaration of an inward transformation. You're given a new identity, right? When you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You are co-heirs with Jesus. And what often happens after spiritually very uh, amazing and mountaintop experiences, what often happens after mountaintop experiences, immediately into the wilderness. Immediately into the wilderness. And what's the first thing that the enemy always talks to you about? Are you sure God loves you? Like actually look at your life. Are you sure God loves you? I mean, you, you, you're not as, as holy as that guy over there, as that girl over there. You, you don't read your Bible a whole lot. You don't really pray to you know, your father a whole lot. Are you sure God loves you? Look at your world, the brokenness, the sin, the chaos, the disorder. Really? You're a son and a daughter of, of the king and yet your life looks like this? The enemy's tactic has never changed. And I just wanna say very clearly, we need to boldly say, get those lies out of here. Who are you when you're in Christ? You are a son and a daughter of God. The maker of heaven and earth the king of the universe. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a new creation. And Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate you, nothing can separate you from God saying, you are my beloved son or daughter. The enemy's tactic never changes. His lies never change. But we are so, so, so susceptible to them. That's the first test. The second test is how many times do we look at our situation and we say, God, I know you promised that you love me, but I want to test you. I want you, I want you to prove that you love me. I want you to show up in some way because right now it just seems like you've kind of forgotten about me. How often do we fall prey to that test? And then the third test, a shortcut to glory. This one's interesting and more subtle because 
when we are in Christ, we are promised two things, life eternal and suffering in this life, right? I mean, we're promised more than that, but that's the gist of it. Like when you are in Christ and you are a Christian and a disciple of Jesus, you are promised life and life abundant and life everlasting, forgiveness of sins, peace, free from anxiety, the presence of the Holy Spirit of the living God within you, and you are also promised suffering. You are also promised uh, being persecuted because of righteousness. And so the temptation in the test three is to say, hey, you know where you're gonna be in life. You know that you're given peace and you know that you're given life and life eternal. But the question is, how are you gonna, how are you gonna get that? Are you gonna get that by trying to hang on to everything in your own life? Are you gonna get that by trying to shortcut what God actually, maybe God wants to put you in the wilderness for a year, for two years, for five years, for 10 years, and you're just in the wilderness and you're like, God, I don't, what's happening here? I was promised all this stuff and now I'm suffering all the time. And in those moments, that's when the enemy comes in and said, God doesn't love you. And that's when the Holy Spirit, who has power over the enemy, says, you are my child. Oftentimes we want the character without the suffering. We want to be generous, but we also want to be rich. We want justice, but we don't actually have to work at anything. And that's what the, te- the third test is all about. Asking us, how are we going to get this? How are we going to follow God? Now, Israel failed the test. You and I have failed the test a million times. Jesus didn't. Here's why the gospel is so beautiful. It's because when Jesus passed the test, he gave us that result. Jesus' test and his passing the test in the wilderness is now whose? Mine and yours. When Jesus passed the test and became the human, became the ideal Israel and became the human that you and I were meant to be but could never be, he on the cross gave that to us. So now when we are tempted and we are tested and when God brings us in the wilderness and whether it's the spirit putting us in a time of testing or it's the enemy trying to tempt us with stuff, we can look at both and we say, God, I know who I am. I know who I am. I know what my identity is. It's a son, it's a daughter of God. I know that right now, I don't know all the answers and life seems very difficult and it's confusing and it's weird and I'm I'm, I'm in chaos and I have this low-grade anxiety for my entire life and I'm hungry in the wilderness and I'm thirsty in the wilderness and I don't know what's going on, but here's what I do know, that I'm God's son, that I'm God's daughter, that this relationship doesn't go, I'm gonna test you and you need to prove yourself to me, but rather I know that you have my best interest in mind. I know that you're well pleased with me. Not because of anything I've done, but because Christ's identity now becomes my identity and our identity. So I don't know, I don't know where you are with what you believe about God, but there's this famous quote the first thought that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if you um, are easily susceptible to the tests and the lies of the enemy, it becomes really easy to think that God is always just slightly disappointed with you. That God is always just like, ah, I wish you'd be a little bit better. And we can say with full confidence when you are in Christ, 
you become his and he becomes yours. That he is well pleased. God looks at you, brother and sister in Christ. God looks at you with a smile on his face because of the righteousness of Jesus that is now given to us. That's the gospel. Israel failed the test. We failed the test. We will still fail the test. And that doesn't mean we don't memorize scripture or we don't fast and we don't pray. That means we do all of those things, but we do it out of response to the grace of God, not in need of, not because we need to earn the grace of God. Jesus' passing of the test right here now becomes ours. And look at verse 11. After Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, what happened? The devil left him. And angels came and began to serve him. The rest of the gospel according to Matthew, anytime Jesus is confronted with a demon or the enemy or an unclean spirit, they always respond to Jesus' words. Jesus says, get out of her, and the demons leave. Jesus says, you have no place here, get out of here, and they obey his voice. That victory is now ours when Jesus looks at us and he says, you are mine and I am yours. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your victory. Jesus, we are so thankful that you have passed the test when we could not when Israel could not, when no other person in human history could. And Lord, as we sit here reflecting on these tests, I ask that you would give us a fresh vision of your victory that you've given to us. I ask that, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us the ability to be aware of the lies of the enemy. That we would call them out. That we would address them. We would look them in the eyes and we would say, get out of here. Father, we know that it's so easy to believe lies because they're deceitful and they trick us all the time, but we also know that your spirit in us is more powerful than any lie that we could ever believe. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us an awareness when we're believing lies. You would also give us a strength in you to remove those lies from our eyes and our ears and our hearts and that we would just look to you and be saved. We pray all this in your son's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.